This episode brought to you by Cafe Imports, Minneapolis-based importers of fine specialty green coffees, independently owned and operated since 1993. Cafe Imports has been dedicated to decreasing its impact on the earth through renewable energy, carbon neutrality, and by supporting conservational efforts in places where quality coffee is grown and also where quality coffee is consumed. Where does your coffee come from? Welcome to the Lake Superior Podcast. I'm Walt Lindela. And I'm Frida Wara. We are made stronger by story, and there's no better source than the continent's largest body of fresh water, Lake Superior. So join us as we highlight the five national parks that ring this greatest of the Great Lakes, meet the people, tour the places, and learn about the projects that make these parks and body of water so remarkable. This podcast made possible with the support of the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation and Media Brew Communications. I'm Walt Lindela. And I'm Frida Wara. Welcome back to the Lake Superior Podcast. Glad to have you join us today. Take a few minutes to talk about something. Frida, this is a really interesting one we've got lined up here today. You bet, Walt. You know, I guess taking a little step back to talk about the five parks on Lake Superior and they're as different as the lake. You know, when we go to walk, even here in Marquette, we can walk miles and miles of sandy beach, or we can go and jump black rocks if we want to. Right. Maybe not today, but getting close, <laughs> getting close. And when you look at the five parks along the lake, they are also just very, very different. And one of my favorites, and I know you it grew up right there in that. that yes, I did. That yes, I did. Ballpark uh, is the Keweenaw Historical Park, because it is 22 different heritage sites, and those heritage sites aren't necessarily owned by the National Park Service, but they come together under that umbrella. And this is the region of Upper Michigan that is the Keweenaw Peninsula that juts out into Lake Superior, and it's the Keweenaw Historical Park. Joining us today to talk about some very interesting components of that is the Keweenaw Historical Park historical architect. It's John Arnold. John, good day. How are you? Hello. I'm doing very well. Thank you both. Well, it's good to have you here today to talk about this, John. Um, and, and before we get into anything else, one of the questions that came up uh, in my mind right off the bat is, what is the historical architect? What do you do at Keweenaw Historical Park? Yeah, well, it's pretty fascinating, actually. Um, not all parks have historical architects, so I'm extremely fortunate to have this position. In fact, I think there are only something like three of 60 parks in the Midwest region that have their own dedicated historical architect. And uh, my charge, by and large, is to, um, is to help preserve, interpret uh, above-ground properties, and that's going to be buildings and some structures. We have a landscape architect, a uh, historical architect, so, and he takes care of things that are dirt and below. And then there's archaeology, of course, which is still different. Um, and then because, as you mentioned, we're a, a partnership park, uh, I, I get to extend these um, technical assistance opportunities to our partners. So it's really very broad in scope. Uh, and you'll have to ask more targeted questions to get anything more out of me than that. <laughs> well, tell us about your background then. Your background is, uh, I understand that you grew up in Alaska and led you to a degree in architecture. Tell us about how that all came to be. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, I was born and bred in Alaska, which is you know way over there and way up there. And 
Uh, I loved it as a kid in Anchorage. I'm in high school. My family moved me to Juneau, and I lived on an island, which was, to be very connected to the mainland by a bridge. But, of course, there were no roads from Juneau elsewhere, so it was really still an island. Um, and then I, I broke from that to go to Fairbanks for some college. And I was studying biology all this time, so you're probably wondering how to, you know, what happened there also. <laughs> well, somewhere along the line, I decided I wasn't really interested in biology as a career, being a biologist, I still liked design, natural design, and the, uh, the world around us. Um, and at that point, I made a transformation into architecture. It was sort of like as soon as I dumped biology, the veil was lifted, and I saw this glowing thing in front of me and thought, well, hot dog, that's what I'll do. So I went to the University of Oregon and got a degree in architecture, went out into the world, um, got my initial, initial licensure, and was doing predominantly residential architecture. Um, really enjoying it in Oregon, Washington, California a little bit. And, and it's somewhere I got the idea that I really didn't have sufficient understanding of the history of the built environment. Um, I am not an historian, and I didn't want to study this from books. I just figured that that would, it would melt me, but I needed to know it somehow. So in my researches uh, into what I could study that would be relevant and helpful for understanding this, I came across historic preservation as a profession and a discipline. And I had always thought of this as sort of, you know, really kind of dismissively, I have to confess, looking back on it, just, you know, cute little house museums and things. But of course, it's not. As soon as I began studying it, I saw that, no, it's all sorts of fantastic, wonderful, historical buildings. Um, I was also doing this at the University of Oregon, my historic preservation, really, you know, just kind of trucking along. And I think it probably wasn't two weeks into this two-year program that I learned of something called industrial archaeology, and boy, did my ears perk up at that. What on earth? I mean, I was thinking kind of Indiana Jones and, uh, you know, (laughs) Iron John mixed together, and I I want to do this because I want to study these landscape scale um, enterprises with, uh, you know, these gigantic industrial undertakings. How do I go about doing this? Well, it turns out that the only program in the United States uh, where one can focus on industrial archaeology, and here it's called Industrial Heritage and Archaeology, is at Michigan Technological University. Hmm. So of course, I said, well, where is that? And my wife and <laughs> I looked at the map and for spring break. We came out at mud season and visited and met some folks at Tech and tromped around in the woods. And it was probably the worst time of year to visit. You know, it's pretty, pretty nasty, but it was still beautiful and engaging. Um, so a short year or two later, I guess, after that, we, we made the move out to this part of America that really, probably, I would have lost the bar bet. I would have said it was Canada. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And, you know, to come at mud season. So we know because of that background. Okay, Juno, we can't get too wet for you. And Fairbanks, we can't get too cold. So <laughs> it was it had to be a match made in heaven. But really, did you did you even know about Lake Superior? Had you ever been around that region before? No. Uh-uh. I'd heard rumors <laughs> that there were these huge lakes in the, <laughs> and that they were like seas. I mean, it sounds like 18th, 19th century, my ignorance of it. I'd never been by. I just hadn't. I'd been on the West Coast and the East Coast and the whole middle section of America. Embarrassingly enough, um, I hadn't visited. You know, my first sighting of Lake Superior was from Duluth, and it was, I was blown away. It was an ocean. There were waves. There was no wind. Mm-hmm. But they were waves. We're talking with John Arnold today. He's a historical architect at Keweenaw Historical Park. 
you made the trip. You kind of came. You started to study here at Michigan Tech. Uh, but what was it that really made you? What made you say, "I want to stay. I want to. I want to stay here. I want to set up shop and and live here." Uh, yeah, I could say it's the land, and I could say it's the history, and I could say it's the people, um, and all of that's true. Um, but also, it's opportunity. Now, that's going to sound maybe a little a little funny for a, a post-industrial landscape, but to me, there is just so much opportunity here in the Keweenaw, in the Copper Country, in the Upper Peninsula, in the Midwest, to do so much in so many directions. Um, for example, my wife and I bought a 1902 schoolhouse in Hubble that we live in. Mm. That is not something that would have been available to a student and an artist outside of Seattle. Probably never in our lifetime would we have had the opportunity for that kind of project. And in retrospect, maybe it's a little overwhelming, but it's a good project. You sound like you like projects, John Arnold. <laughs> yeah. That's what it does seem like, you know. And, and now here's the thing. You mentioned a moment ago, you said that, uh, you know, not all national parks have a historical architect. So in the context of the Keweenaw uh, Historical Park, what does it mean to have one? What are really your responsibilities? Are you designing um, restorations? Are you looking at new things? What what are you, what are you doing there? Right. That's a great question. Um because, of course, my background in architecture, I was designing, and boy, do I love it. And I even use that as the reason I got from biology into architecture. And in this role, no, I'm not. I've, I do very little design, and that's just fine, because my charge is to, uh, to help take care of heritage properties. And, and by that, I mean um, determine what's needing assistance. That's one of the biggest parts. Um, we have park-owned properties, and we have partner-owned properties, and then we have properties owned by the community at large. And they're pretty much, you know, to a building, to a structure, important to telling the story and the history of copper. And uh, each one needs help, and each in its own way. So I field calls from the community, and I field calls from our partners, needing advice on things like... Um, What's the best way to repoint my building that's in accordance with the Secretary of the Interior Standards uh, to the Freedom of Historic Properties? And how can I get my building um, listed in the National Register? Um, all the way to, we're looking at installing HVAC in our theater, HVAC air conditioning and heating. How will that um, potentially affect the, the, the structural integrity of our historic building? Because we're changing the hydrothermal envelope. So it's sort of an endless stream of interesting challenges coming from every direction, um, needing good answers. And actually, they're not good answers. They're kind of the best answers we can find. That's one of the really wonderful things about working for the National Park Service is that we are the standard bearer for um, keeping uh, heritage properties, historic properties going in one way or another, whether it's preservation or rehabilitation. We, we make the standards and maintain them, gold standards nationally. So it's really working with sort of some of the most interesting people on these fantastic buildings um, in, in the best way you can. And you might imagine that it doesn't go particularly fast and everything, you know, costs a little bit more. And both are true. It, it's slow and it can be expensive, but it's the, it's the right way of doing it, really. And then, of course, there are opportunities to help folks out all along the line. As you might know, this is not a particularly well-to-do region. People do uh, really care for it and their properties, and, and they do what they can with what they have, but it's all often not, not a lot that they have. So there are simple questions like, 
how do I remove this, um, you know, non-historical siding from my building? Just a simple modification or what should I do to prepare to repaint? And these are things that I can help with also. It sounds to me, John, like you've got a little bit of everything that's under your purvey there in terms of, of the historical aspect of it, because that's the idea here is the history. And that means that you are operating under National Park Service tight, strong standards for this preservation work. But this can be complicated. How do you, uh, you know, how do you determine what projects are funded? And, and tell us about how you prioritize that work. Boy, yeah, that's, um, that's a big Exciting But it is. I mean, you have to follow There's these so standards. Well, especially in our climate. You know, I mean, yeah. you look at something and you think, can that roof last another season? Yeah. Well, in that example in particular, often they don't. Um, and until fairly recently, I have to say, there hasn't been a lot of reinvestment in our communities up here. Um, I actually wrote down a number because... I'm bad at dates and numbers, apparently. Calumet Township, uh, which houses the village of Calumet, at its peak in 1910 was about 33,000 residents. And today, that's under 6,500 residents. So that's, what, a fifth of the population from its peak 100 years ago. So, of course, there are many, many buildings that just have no, uh, you know, no one using them or living in them or occupying in any sort of way or maintaining them. And not a lot of... um, there hasn't been a lot of hope on the horizon since the shutting of the mines in the late 60s. So people were reluctant to invest or reinvest anything in these buildings, uh, including roofs. And so once the roof goes, then you start losing the tops of your walls and then the second floor and then so on. So in, um, I guess I could say, to, to circle back to your question, in, in cent- uh, population centers such as Calumet, what, you, what we try to do is, is help property owners because they are um, privately held. Uh, to stabilize their properties, and that's that's a it's a tall order because there are so many, as I've just described. Um, for our own park properties, we have uh, regular maintenance schedules for our own properties, and those are well 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 under control. Um, I'd say those are good. Partner the, the formal heritage site partners, um, most virtually all of them um, do an extraordinary job uh, maintaining and making small improvements to their, their, their properties over time. But again, there are so many. So how do you prioritize? Well, I think that the, the analogy that I hear most often is it's sort of a bullseye, almost of necessity slash convenience. And in the middle of that are park-owned properties that are our, the primary responsibility to care for. And then second to that, the next little ring out are uh, partner-owned properties. How do we, um, what can we do to help them? And then third is community. But within, within those rings, there are also people who selectively step forward or don't. So those priorities uh, are sort of self-selected in a way, and they'll come to the fore. Um, adding an additional complication onto this is the fact that many of these older, bigger buildings and structures, are um, they pose some risk uh, just due to potential collapse. And so, of course, we want to try to spend money and time stabilizing things so that they don't um, you know, fall apart and hurt someone or another building or um, all sorts of things can go awry with that. So I would say that we are working towards a coherent structure for prioritizing. Uh, the last couple of decades since the inception of the park, there's just been such overwhelming need that a lot of it has been what needs to happen next. And that's what's been addressed. This building needs repointing. This building needs a new roof. 
this building that needs some special attention around the base. And so that's been sort of the approach. And, and hopefully we're sort of, uh, it feels to me that we're turning a quarter in the last several years and we'll be able to plan ahead and be more proactive about making these decisions. You know, John, listening to you and just feeling the confidence, I, I can just feel it speaking with you, but I am reminded that late Friday night of May 21st and into Saturday morning, fire destroyed the entire 100 block of the 5th Street in Calumet. I mean, our community is still reeling from that. And that had to be absolutely terrifying for you and the town. And and now we always know that the weather, the fragility of our community, of course, is impacted by weather here, but now also fire. Has that changed anything in, in your project scope? Well, yeah. Gosh, I'm stumbling towards a little bit because it is so terrible. It's um, beyond displacement of the of the people who were living there because there were apartment buildings and the, um, you know the, the, the importance of recognizing those who rushed to to everyone's aid in the in the aid of adjacent buildings. Um, it's not had an immediate immediate impact on my project scope, mostly because our project scope, in terms of my work, is a couple three years out. But what it what I have seen. Already, and you know, in the days following this event, um, is a, a heightened awareness of risk, fire risk, uh, and a renewed interest in um, in addressing blight in the community. And that's been sort of this perpetual conversation for as long as I've well, longer than I've been here. I've been here about seven years now, and and blight's a problem. Um, as as I noted earlier, you know, the population is a sixth of what it was, mm-hmm. or a fifth of what it was, and. It, it's just difficult to to do what really needs to be done to even you know provide minimal maintenance for some of these these areas. Um, these buildings are also important for the village of Calumet because they're on the primary commercial strip, the street. They're at the south end, and it's a one way street going north. So it's some of the first buildings that a visitor will see if they're arriving by automobile. Uh, it's a big it's a big gap, it, and of course it affected affects the adjacent buildings and the streetscape and the and the commercial enterprises across the street, um, it's a big hole. It's a big hole in the community. Is there a place uh, for what you do with the Park Service and everything to step up in this? I know that there were some conversations with the village and rebuilding and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm assuming there could be some input and whatnot, but it's probably kind of ancillary for you, isn't it? Well, the Village of Calumet has an historic district commission, and they oversee... um, rehabilitation or apparent uh, also um, new construction work within the boundaries of the historic district, which these three buildings were. Um, so that's primarily the responsibility to, to review uh, and approve any new infill. That said, I'm also the architectural advisor to the historic district commission. So I personally, and also as a um, parks and staff, do have the capacity to provide technical assistance for re- reconstructing buildings in this place. God love uh, this. Funding is a big question. I, I can't even begin to answer that because these are, these are big buildings. Yeah, We're talking amazing. with uh, John Arnold here today on the podcast. He is historical architect at Keweenaw Historical Park. Of course, that's in the Keweenaw Peninsula of Upper Michigan. Uh, you know, John, when we look at some of the projects and things as you start moving into them, I'm sure it depends on the scope and the size. But is is there an average timeline from beginning to end when you start to work on a particular uh, project and start moving forward with that? The, the projects 
they're kind of ongoing. Most of the projects sure. would be considered multi-year, I would say. And part of that is, um, you know, a limitation of our, our building season. Part of that um, is a limitation of funding availability and how much can be allocated per uh, spending cycle, which I guess is the fiscal year. Um, and then and part of it um, further is just the ability to, de- to define a project that can meet um, time and money goals. So I guess that's sort of the, the same thing all wrapped up into one. Mm-hmm. Um, projects are built and funded about three, uh, excuse me, built about for about three years out to be worked on in three years in advance. Um, and the funding takes place over a single year. So it's not exactly staccato, but it's kind of staccato-y, right? Start and stop and start and stop and start and stop on the bigger ones. So I would say that there's not really any project that, uh, or a building that would be completed, work would be completed in a, in a year. There would be all multiple years. All of it's contingent upon availability of funding and workers um, and um, technical expertise. Good weather, too. Building weather, which, you know, <laughs> yeah, year to year, that. you know, especially in the Keweenaw where you get hit with some pretty good snowstorms and stuff during the winter months, you know. Uh, one of the things that this is, of course, uh, a podcast with the uh, the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation. Um, how can the foundation help with some of these projects in terms of moving forward? That's really important to me to, to know that, John, to share, because as a board member listening to you, we have done major projects. We've done ballast water projects at Isle Royal. We've done Curiosity Stream to get Drew Rush and and working to have David Huckfeld work at Apostle Islands. You know, we're trying to be involved with all the parks. And it's really important for us to know ways that we might be able to partner and help with some of your projects. Well, we would certainly appreciate that. Um, I think I've sort of demonstrated there's ample need Um <laughs> I think there's kind of a couple of a couple of different routes here that could be very helpful, different but related. As a as a partner site, or as a partner park, we have uh, multiple multiple partners with some with multiple buildings which need help in rehabilitation or even just preservation, um, such as the Calumet Theater, for example, in in the village of Calumet. Um, in terms of additional insulation or and HVAC and various interior rehabilitation needs, um, increasing accessibility to the building and so on. Uh, but before any of that can really meaningfully be done, uh, it all needs to be sort of preceded by a, a study, um, a building study, which looks in detail at the building, the structure, the various systems, and helps make recommendations for prioritization on what work could be done and how it could be done without compromising the historical integrity of, of the property. Uh, all of that costs money. So that could be a, a pretty healthy list there. And then I think that the other prong that would be worth considering, um, we have the, the park itself that is owns um, the historic Calumet and Hecla Library Building just across the street from headquarters in Calumet. Um, this is currently the Keweenaw History Center, which is uh, contains the archives and museum collections, storage, and some uh, park staff offices. And it's a beautiful building, which anyone can see walking by uh, from the outside um, in a prominent location. And I would argue it's even more gorgeous on the inside because this was built as a, a demonstration of, of Calumet and Hackler's um, 
you know, outreach to the community at the time and how what pride they took in their business and how they cared for their community members. And there's a, a beautiful reading room, which right now is being used to store chairs. Yeah. And they're nice chairs, <laughs> mind you, but it could be turned to a, a more public use with... Uh, you know, as a reading room, either for archival work or just some kind of uh, some kind of outreach with um, with exhibits, and some of this is outlined in uh, in the historic structures report um, for the building, which is sort of like what I was the same kind of report I was mentioning for Calumet Theater and mm-hmm. and other places. Um, so, so there's there's plenty of opportunity to help, but it, the first step in helping is to figure out what needs to be helped. So that's sort of that's sort of the structure that I would like to to follow on. Well, on all of these projects moving forward, which I anticipate being a good long time here at the park. John, do you have any idea what, say, for example, a study on the Calumet Theater would cost or how long it would take? I know well, I put uh, you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Ballpark and a price, yeah. right? <laughs> sure. Uh, you could probably get a pretty decent report on that building for fifteen to 20000 something like that. I don't think it would necessarily be a full-blown historic structures report, which engages a lot of um, his, actual history of the building and is is kind of that's the that's the document that lives on the shelf forever. Mm-hmm. But even a building study to look in detail at the current conditions of the building and its systems um, and make recommendations would be very useful to the theater. We're talking with John Arnold today. He is historical architect at the Keweenaw Historical Park. Lots of information here to take in. But here's the question that we really want to know is, what do you tell first-time visitors to the Keweenaw Historical Park? What do you tell them to expect? I would say, first off, you need to expect to spend just twice as long as you think you're going to need you can't do it whatever you think you're going to do it in. Yeah. If you think you can spend it three days here, you're going to take six. This place is 100 miles by 20 miles. And the park itself, as noted earlier, is only a small portion of that. And the park property is smaller yet. But historic properties range from Aunt Noggin in the south to Copper Arbor in the north. Mm-hmm. Uh, 21 formal partner sites and all of the communities in between, which are not formal partners but are full of important heritage um, and history all throughout, and and nature too. To be fair, I remember I studied biology before all of this. This is, seems like uh, you know, uh, it, it. There's so much to take in, so much to check out. You could do that, but are there parts maybe that aren't as well known that you think people shouldn't miss, or at least sort of the lesser known parts of the park that you'd like to maybe tell us about? I want the secret yeah. place. <laughs> <The> secret places. <laughs> Well, oh gosh, there are so many. Um, okay, so a, a, an old history that I'm particularly fond of and has nothing to do with copper is the presence of stromatolites under basalt formation in the far north of Horseshoe Harbor. These are billion-plus-year-old algae mats, long dead, of course, fossilized. I think there are not too many places in the world that you can see these. That's fascinating. Really? The geology underlying all of this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it weren't for the geology, we wouldn't have the copper, we wouldn't have the people, we wouldn't have the park. So you need to start about a billion years ago to really get a handle on things here. And I guess it's, it's not exactly a trick question, it's a tricky question. And so it deserves a tricky answer because I don't think that, I don't think there's any one 
or two or five sites or secret hidden spots that you would need to see to get it. But it's really about the network. It's the, the connectivity between people and place and landscape and built environments and copper underground and copper above ground and copper leaving ground by the waterways. It's this, it's this network through time and space. And I know I'm getting a little bit out there, but that's really what makes the place. It's just, it's so rich and full in all directions that it can be just dizzying literally to try to figure to try to figure it out and to try to figure out how to communicate that story clearly. John Arnold, you've just made me so proud. Um, you should see the smile on her face right now. You know, and, and uh-huh. Walt, look at you. You grew up looking at that canal because the water, the water that connects all of it and then the heritage. It's You, you know, and that's what Frida's talking about, John, for me, is I grew up in Chassel and uh, I worked uh, in, in Ripley at one of the, uh, it was called the Arcadian Copper Mine back in the day. It's sort of a, a tourist attraction, but I learned a lot of the history of what you're talking about, the geology, why the copper is there, how pure the copper is. And then you look at it from the industrial standpoint point of how it was i mean just the story of the quincy mine and the underground mining and then the the bringing it up and up to the surface down to the water getting shipped and out and all of that it's a real interesting microcosm of american industrial history but it's also moving forward with things like what you're doing at the park and with michigan tech and all of that and you kind of brought it all together for you and i could hear that in what you're talking about it i mean you, you you've got a real feel for it and a real passion well, I'm glad that carried. Sometimes I feel a little rambly because it's so rich. But uh, yeah, there's Thank a lot there. There's a lot there. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> hey, if people do want to find out more about Keweenaw Historical Park, what are some good ways to do that? Well, the website is a go-to. That's uh, nps.gov backslash Kiwi, K-E-W-E. And then there's a variety of social media um, accounts, Facebook and Twitter and the other one. And clearly not in charge of social media. Instagram, <laughs> there you are. There you go. Um, really, the best way to tell is to come visit and explore. John Arnold has been with us today on our podcast. He's historical architect at Keweenaw Historical Park. John, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today, and, and we hope to follow up with you again sometime soon later on the podcast. I would enjoy that very much. This has been a real pleasure. Um, thanks both for your time and the opportunity to wax poetic about this place I love so much. You're welcome. We'll talk with <laughs> you soon. And we got to come visit that yeah. Hubble schoolhouse, too. I'll tell you, that yeah. sounds just fabulous. Well, there's plenty of room. You're very welcome, <laughs> Thanks again, John. Appreciate it. Okay? Wonderful visit. Okay. Take care now. That's John Arnold, historical architect at uh, Keweenaw Historical Park. Frida, that, I mean, for me, growing up in the area exactly where he's talking about, I saw those buildings as a child before they were being addressed through the, the, the Keweenaw Historical Park. I saw those buildings in various states of disrepair that John is talking about. I've seen them start to come back to a semblance of life, an understanding of what was there. But what's really unique about this park to me is that it's part of going to the region. It's not like you cross a line and you, you know, you pay a fee and you're in a park and, and then you're out of there. It's like so, as he said, from Ontonagon to Copper Harbor. And if you know the region, that's a lot of miles. It's a little bit of everything there, but it's really activating and, and reactivating the history. And it's the people. The people are what hooked him. And it wasn't just the people of today, but the people of the past. Because when you look at all the rich history and the ethnic history and the heritage Mm -hmm. and what they did to eke out a living 
and living not in the comfort of some nice warm climate, but making that all happen in the true. I mean, we talk about the Upper Peninsula as being up north, but you and I both know the Keweenaw is the real north. Really (laughs) up north. So take some time, visit the Keweenaw Historical Park or any of the national parks along Lake Superior. That's what we talk about here on the podcast. And we certainly appreciate you giving us a little bit of your time today as you listened in. It's going to do it for us this time around. I'm Walt Lindela. And I'm Frida Wara. Thank you very much for listening to the Lake Superior podcast brought to you by the folks at the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation. We'll talk with you again soon. Bye-bye. The National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation, NPLSF, is the only official nonprofit 501c3 fundraising partner of the National Park Service for all five U.S. National Park sites on Lake Superior. To learn more about NPLSF projects and programs, you can visit the website at nplsf.org or friend them on Facebook. I'm Frida Wara. And I'm Walt Lindela. Thanks for listening to the Lake Superior Podcast. This podcast made possible with the support of the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation and Media Brew Communications. This episode brought to you by Cafe Imports, Minneapolis-based importers of fine specialty green coffees, independently owned and operated since 1993. Cafe Imports has been dedicated to decreasing its impact on the earth through renewable energy, carbon neutrality, and by supporting conservational efforts in places where quality coffee is grown and also where quality coffee is consumed. Where does your coffee come from?